Thanks again to, to Mike and the band for leading. Mike and I go all the way back to college, so if you want to know all the, all the dirt, um, go ask Mike after the gathering this morning. He can tell you some stories. Uh, it's good to be together, everyone. Welcome again uh, to Discovery. My name is Steve, and uh, thanks for joining us on this uh, three-day weekend, this foggy morning, um, as we gather to celebrate and to worship and to hear uh, from God together as a community. Uh, I know we just prayed, but I want to pray uh, here before we get started this morning, so bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are a good, good Father. We're grateful for the truth that was read over us earlier, all of the things that you say about us. And Father, this morning, um, as we are beginning a new year, as we're uh, starting new practices, as we're learning new rhythms, being invited further into Jesus' way of life, would you remind us that the foundation of all of that is your love for us. That the things that we do, the, the practices that we engage in, the tangible ways in which we worship and follow you, the things that we do are not about earning your approval. You have already spoken your approval and your love over us. And so God, we come before you this morning with gratitude for your grace and for your love, for Jesus his death and resurrection and all that that means for us, this reality that we can live in right relationship with you and with each other. We are grateful for all of it. We ask now that we'd be able to hear from your, uh, from your word today. Would you speak to us, God? Would you free us from the worries, the concerns, the things that we're excited about, looking forward to? Would we be able to be fully present here now to hear from your spirit as it speaks to us? Give us the courage to respond in whatever way we need to respond today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, about five, uh, this last year, there were about 500 scripted television shows made just in the United States. Now, this does not include news programs, variety shows, reality shows, sports programming, all that good stuff. I even have a chart here showing the rise of scripted television shows made in the U.S. This only goes up to 2018, even more made in 2019. With the rise of all of the like streaming services that are out there now, right? There's Netflix and Amazon, but also Disney Plus and Apple TV, all these different things. There's almost an endless market for stories. And this is fascinating to me for a whole bunch of reasons, but, but I think primarily because in the last four or five centuries, we have seen our reality squeezed down flatter and flatter. For thousands of years, human beings believed that the universe was big, that it was mysterious, that there were these transcendent realities that were beyond our ability to comprehend. But the secular project of the last several centuries, especially here in Western culture, has been slowly eradicating the transcendent, reducing our reality to what philosophers call the imminent frame. Here's the, the technical jargon. The imminent frame is a constructed social space that frames our lives entirely within a natural rather than supernatural order. It is the circumscribed space of the modern social imaginary that precludes 
transcendence. More and more, our reality is flat. There is no space for the transcendence. In the film, Jeff, Who Lives at Home, Jason Siegel plays a young man who's convinced that he has this great purpose, that there's some force in the world leading him to do a great act, an act that will give meaning and coherence to a very painful past. But the, the conflict at the heart of the film is that everybody else in his life, especially his family, sees this talk of transcendent purpose as crazy. They question his mental health. They think he's literally out of his mind to be seeking something beyond the natural and the material. The film basically is a metaphor for the world that we live in. It is a sort of parable of the power that the imminent frame has over us. That it's foolish to even think that there's some greater purpose or meaning in our lives. And yet... And yet, even within this imminent frame, we make 500 scripted television shows a year. And this doesn't even begin to get into movies. We we go to the movies, we watch superheroes save the world. We wonder if Ray is going to choose the light side or the dark side of the force. We relish the fact that our team is in the NFC Championship game. Can I get an amen? All right. (laughs) Uh, My apologies to the other the other teams that are still alive. <laughs> Why do we do this? Why do we get so caught up in these stories? No matter how flat our world gets, there is this deep human longing to be caught up in something bigger than ourselves. Because the truth is, and we just sang several of these truths a moment ago, we were not created for the imminent frame. We were created for transcendence. We were created to get caught up in something so much bigger than ourselves, a big, big story. And there are fewer and fewer places where we can find that sense of transcendence, where we're able to get in touch with it, to name it, and to experience it. Now, all of this leads us to Acts chapter 4. If you have a Bible, Open with me, meet me in Acts chapter 4, and if you would like a Bible, a physical copy of it to hold on to this morning, we have some of those, just raise your hand and someone on our team will run around and make sure you have a copy of that. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be here this morning, and we're going to look at just a very short portion of the text, but a picture of what I'll be calling the New Testament church through the remainder of our time together uh, this morning. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, where we read this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. We'll pause there. But here we get one of the first pictures of the early church, the New Testament church. This is really the second picture we get, the other one being at the end of Acts chapter 2. And what we see here is a little bit, we get a little bit of a glimpse into what their gathering was like. They're collective life, their communal life together. Now it's uh, interesting to me because um, 
there's always these movements, I think, within the church, and I mean like the capital C, big, big picture church, that want to do away with the corporate worship gathering. That, that sort of see this space as maybe redundant or unnecessary or maybe not a great use of resources. And I do think that there is something to some of those critiques, that some of those thoughts can be helpful, even prophetic. But I also think that those movements that want to get rid of you know, Sunday-type gatherings are very much stuck in this imminent frame. This flat world without transcendence where all we're sort of left with is whatever works for me. When we gather together on Sunday mornings, we're not just doing a church service. We are storytelling. We are inviting people to consider the bigger picture reality. There might be more to our lives than what we can see and touch and measure and quantify with numbers. We're helping people create meaning and coherence to their lives and their stories. If you were here last Sunday, man, last Sunday's gathering was a lot of fun. It was great to begin this new journey that we're calling Practice. And what we're doing this year is, as a community, we're moving our way through eight different practices or spiritual disciplines as a way to engage in the life that Jesus offers us, the zoe aeneas, this eternal life that he came to offer. And, and they're, they're formational. They're about what does it look like for us as a community to be formed as disciples in the ways of Jesus. So last week was the launch. The next couple of weeks now, we are exploring our first practice in groups. The first one that we're looking at is this practice called Sabbath, this idea of resting, taking a day off to disengage from the regular uh, pressures of life. Quick reminder, a lot of this process is going to unfold in groups. So if you're not currently involved in a group, now is a great time to get involved in one. We have two new groups that are starting, one on Sunday nights, one on Wednesday nights, and then all of our other groups continue on. So if you need information about our groups, there's a table right outside the doors, there's the connection point tent, there's tons of people that you can ask about, and of course, our webpage and app always have all that information on there. Now... Eight practices, there's going to be one gathering dedicated to each practice, which then raises the question, well, what are we doing in the gatherings the rest of the weeks? Like when we're not talking about Sabbath, what are we doing for those next couple of weeks? What we're going to do over the course of the year is we're going to look at a, a, a couple of different topics, and then we're going to spend some time in the Old Testament stories that we find in the book of 1 Samuel. But the thing that brings all of this together, the, the through line, the big theme in all of it is this idea of creating space for the transcendent. Getting in touch with this big true story that God has been telling and continues to tell in our world. And now we start that journey with a conversation about money. Collective groan, right? It's okay, you can feel uncomfortable about it. <laughs> we begin with a conversation about money. Now, that might feel like a big left turn. Steve, you're just talking about transcendence and these bigger realities and the imminent frame and philosophy and blah, blah, blah. And now all of a sudden we're talking about money. What a Jesus juke, right? What a pastor move. Well, in our imminent frame, I think one of the quickest and easiest ways for us to find meaning and purpose is through money. This is so much of what our reality gets reduced to, Right? how our economy is doing, the state of our bank accounts. Money is the one thing that we can 
measure. We can know how much we have, how much we're spending. We invest it. We can try to make more of it. It's just sort of there all the time in our consciousness. And I think in a very strange way, because it is so prevalent, it is paradoxically a doorway to the transcendent. Jesus makes this connection very clearly. He says, where our treasure is, that is where you will find our hearts. Where our treasure is, that is where you will find our hearts. How we think about money, how we use money, it reveals the kind of story that we think we are in. Money has just as much to do with our formation in the ways of Jesus as Sabbath or fasting or prayer. And so we're going to spend some time talking about it because it's so formational. Now, every Sunday when we gather, we have this little moment where we invite you to give. We call this, uh, this thing the offering, right? And, and, and people come by your seat with this bag and we pass it around and some people drop some stuff in there. And then we have this language that goes with this moment, right? We invite you to give missionally and worshipfully and sacrificially. It's part of what I would call our liturgy. And what we want to do for the next couple of weeks is break that down, particularly those three words. What does it actually mean for us to give missionally, worshipfully, sacrificially? What are we really talking about when we talk about giving? For those of us who have been around for a while, we've maybe heard that bit in the gathering so many times that it's just become white noise, background thing. We sort of zone out, uh, check our Instagram account, whatever, until the music comes back, right? Others of us, maybe if you're newer to the community, you're like, what, is, what are they talking about? I don't understand what, what this means. And so what we want to do here for the sake of transparency is explain our language, talk a little bit about our theology of money and giving, and then also talk about how do we use these resources collectively. And then finally, we're going to spend a little bit of time here at the beginning of the year talking about money because the Bible talks about money a lot. If you combine the number of verses in Scripture that, that cover the topics of faith and prayer, you'd get just over 500 verses. In comparison, there are about 2,350 verses that are about money. Think about that for a minute. Even if we didn't want to talk about it, we'd still have to talk about it because here at Discovery, we talk about the Bible a lot, and the Bible talks about money all the time. All right? So we're going to spend some time here for formation, for transparency, and because the Bible doesn't shy away from talking about the issue of money. Now, with all of that in mind, let's come back to our picture of the New Testament church in the book of Acts. Okay, This church was located in the city of Jerusalem, and by the time we get to chapter 4, it is what sociologists would call a megachurch. There were several thousand people who had joined the Jesus movement at this point. And so this makes some of the observations about this first church, very, very interesting. The text says in verse 32, they were one in heart and mind. This community was unified. Now, there's always this part of me that, that when we talk about unity or when we see these pictures of unity in Scripture, there's part of me that gets really excited about it because it's like, wow, all those people pulling together in the same direction. How cool would that have been? And then there's this other part of me that has this very negative Reaction. I think they're like, they all wear like white t shirts and white tennis shoes, and it just seems like really weird that they would all be one in heart and mind. Like, is this just some sort of like weird Christian zombie conformity thing? Uh, not appealing to me, which maybe says a lot about me, but anyway. <laughs> 
What is going on here? What does it mean that they were one in heart and mind? Now, right before this, verses 23 through 31, we see that the church had started to face some challenges. And so they get together and begin to pray. And when they pray, all kinds of crazy stuff happens. The earth shakes. They begin to speak boldly about Jesus. And people are getting healed. And so what we see when we combine that picture and then the one we have in verses 32 to 35, the unity here is not about behavior or appearance or personality. Their unity is around the mission. They are unified around the mission of boldly sharing the good news of Jesus with those around them. Unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity. They are unified, again, around the deep truth that God is redeeming his creation through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. Now, this missional unity leads them to share, to do some very practical things to serve the mission and meet each other's needs. They they shared, it says, everything that they had. Their unity around the mission leads them to be very unattached to their stuff, less inclined to hoard their treasure. Instead, they're investing their treasure into this community of believers, into their surrounding city and neighbors in order to further the mission. And we see this happening in a few different ways. The apostles, it says, testify to the resurrection of Jesus with great power. So there's this verbal witness testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. And then on either side of that statement, we can get pictures of their incredible generosity, sharing resources, buying and selling property, distributing the the proceeds from those sales to those in need, so much so that it says that there were no more needy people. Can you imagine what that would be like? And then kind of undergirding this whole thing, the author very clearly points out that this is a grace. All of this is a grace. God's generosity towards them led them to be generous towards each other in very, very real, tangible ways. The saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through his resurrection transforms people into a life of radical generosity where we're not attached to our stuff. We hold it open-handedly. We share it to further the mission. Our time, our talents, our treasures, all are usable for this mission of sharing the good news or as we say it here, helping people discover the good news of Jesus. Now sometimes this does mean we testify, right? There's this verbal witness to the good news of Jesus and then other times... There are these tangible things that we can do, giving of our resources to either help someone personally or corporately together to further the mission. And again, all of this is a grace. All of this is a gift. And quite frankly, it's one of my favorite parts about being involved in a local church, watching how this sharing of resources serves the mission. Collectively, as we do this, we become invested in what God is doing here, helping people discover good news, find a church home, watching people get baptized, seeing students connect with 
uh, longer-term residents here in the community, serving those in need in different ways, seeing the good news spread not just here in Davis or on campus, but even around the world through the people that we partner with. There's a much bigger story going on there than anything I could do or manufacture on my own or any of us could manufacture on our own. But here's the thing, we, and when I say we here, the church, I mean the big, again, big C, big picture church, I think the church is only scratching the surface of what it could do collectively. I think the church is a sleeping giant when it comes to resource management. Incredible good could be done in the world if we were better stewards of our resources. Now, in politics, this idea of, you know, grassroots, everyone getting involved, micro-campaign sort of giving has been growing a lot in popularity in the last 10 to 15 years. The idea is that if you, uh, you could get one person, right, to write you a really big check. One person could write a million-dollar check, but then you're sort of beholden, right, to that one person. Or you can get a million people to give one dollar and tap into the power of the collective. And there's always like, you know, some article coming out about, you know, a a candidate who's doing this, and it's usually presented in this kind of like revolutionary way. And I always chuckle a little bit because it's not revolutionary. The church has been demonstrating the collective power of giving to accomplish a mission for 2,000 years. Now, the vast majority of New Testament churches were made up of very poor people. The early church did not grow because it had wealthy benefactors. It grew because everyone pitched in, and God used that collective energy to demonstrate his grace and his power. And the same thing is still true today. Now, in a, a couple of weeks from now, this is sort of an advertisement, February 9th, we're going to have our annual State of Discovery meeting, and we'll go through our uh, finances then in more detail. But I wanted to sort of share with you kind of the broad strokes of our giving and our budget here at Discovery, uh, not because we're in any sort of crisis mode at all, but simply to help us begin to dream and imagine a little bit what could happen here if we further tapped into the power of, the, uh, of our collective potential. So to begin with, um, we have an operational budget of about $320,000. That's what it takes to operate Discovery for a year in our current uh, construction without rearranging staff or the theater or where we meet, uh, any, any of those sorts of kind of bigger ticket items. That $320,000, it gets broken down into four big categories, all right? One of those categories is staff. $175,000 goes to paying our staff um, over the course of the year. And that includes uh, our friend, Rolly. You guys remember Rolly? Some of you do? Yeah. Good. He's off in Arizona on his new adventure, but that number does include him in case you had a question about that. $100,000 then to facilities, administrative costs, $25,000 for ministry programs, and then $20,000 goes back out into mission, some of the different partners that we have. All right, so again, I'm painting in broad strokes, but this should give you a sense of, of what our operating costs look like. Now, we have about 200 active adult participants who are here regularly who would say they're a part of the, the, the life of discovery. If you do a little bit of math 
you discover that it would take $133 a month. If everyone gave, those 200 active adult participants gave 200, nope, $133 a month, okay, we'd meet our operational costs. And by the way, again, we're, we're definitely on track to meet those costs. This is, again, just a thought exercise. Now, obviously, some of us can do more than 133 a month. Some of us might not be able to do that, and all of that is fine. This, again, is the power of the community. But I do want to have a little bit of fun with the numbers. So let's bump that up and say everyone gave $200 a month. Where would that take us? Well, that's some easy math. That would bring us to $400,000, $80,000 over our operational costs. Let's say we doubled our original number, so 200 people giving $266 a month, we'd have 600, almost $640,000, all right, double the operational costs. And then one more, let's say we grow by 100 people, so there's 300 active adult participants giving $266 each a month would be $957,000, okay, almost a million dollars. Now the point here is not like, ooh, a million dollars, whatever. What I want us to see is the collective power of the church, how a relatively small commitment by a relatively small group of people can have a huge impact. 300 people, $250 a month, that's almost a million dollars. Think of the good that can be done in the world with something like that. Now, the question here that should be forming in your minds is, okay, great. If we tapped into that, if we saw our collective giving go up, what would we do with that? How would we handle that? And I think that is a great question to ask. It's something that our elders, our leaders, our missions team, our staff are praying about all the time. I want to give you three things that I think we would focus on. The absolute first thing that we would do is increase our missions giving. Currently, that 20000 that we give to missions is just over 6% of what uh, we bring in, at least according to that operational budget paradigm, okay? Now, we have said, and I'm a big believer in this, that we want to give away at least 10% of what we bring in as a church, as a way of modeling what the Bible calls a tithe. And we're going to spend some more time talking about what that means next Sunday. Now, we're a little bit short of that 10% goal because of some of the other commitments that we've made, but that needs to change. In fact, I would love to see us go way beyond that 10% to be a church that's giving away 15, 20, maybe even 25% of what we bring in back into missions. Now, how do we break that down? I want to... I Break this down for us a little bit because this is a question that does come up from time to time. Within our missions budget, again, within that $20,000, we set aside some money each month for a future church plant. We also put aside money for teams that we send out on short-term trips. We have another team going to Honduras here at the end of March, and uh, we were really excited to tell you more about what that trip is going to look like here in the coming weeks. We also put aside some money for students who go on summer missions projects to apply for. And so students, if you are planning on going somewhere this summer, would love to have you apply for one of those um, scholarships, and we would love to help you with that. Then in addition to that, we give monthly in partnership with the following people and organizations. This should be flashing up on the screen as I go through this. But we sponsor two children in Haiti through Danita's Children. Uh, we support John and Sarah Stepanian, who are training pastors in Uganda. And then we have a bunch of different student endeavors. David and Claudia Osa working with students in Uruguay. 
Susan Mack working with students in Nigeria, James and Liz Singh who are working with students at the University of Arizona, and then Stephen and Samantha Mockford who were uh, in the Far East but now are back here in the Sacramento area, again working with students. And then in, in addition to all of that, we also have our own kind of student things that we do here to reach the campus at Davis. Now, if we hit that 400,000 marker and we committed to that 10% giving, that would double automatically our missions budget. And we could invest more in the good work that you just saw up on the screen a moment ago, or we could even add more partners. How cool would that be to begin doing those kinds of things? The second thing that we would like to do is to invest more resources into local leadership development. We've been prototyping an internship program here over the last year, and I would really love for this to grow into a year-long developmental program where people who have a sense that God might be calling them to ministry spend a year with us, uh, learning, training, preparing for that, and again, discerning, is this really God's call on my life before they commit to something like seminary or to a full-time position uh, somewhere else. What I would really love to do with this program is be able to offer a stipend to interns and even to be able, uh, even be able to subsidize their housing. Finally, a, a larger operational budget would help us accomplish our vision of becoming a multiplying church that plants multiplying churches. And this comes back to, again, some of those missions ideas. But we would love to be a part of church planning efforts all around the country. Now, the way that that practically manifests itself, that might mean investing in a different facility here in Davis. It might mean developing a fund that we can use to help plants get off the ground. It might involve some other thing that we haven't even thought of yet. But how cool would it be to begin using and creating those kinds of resources right now? Now again, the point here is not to get caught up in the numbers, but to have our imaginations sparked a little bit. Hopefully this helps us dream. Hopefully this helps us pray to see what would God do? How could God accelerate the mission and vision he's graced us with if we unlock the potential of our collective resources? Let's dream about this and pray about this together. Now as we come in for a close here, I just want to say again, money is a sensitive issue. We don't like talking about it anywhere. We really don't like talking about it in church. And when we talk about money, we can get to some really core things pretty quickly. And some of us, when it comes to this issue, struggle with shame, with disappointment, with pride. I find that most of the people I talk to would love to give more, but they feel trapped by debt trapped by other commitments, or, or just sort of have this defeated sense of, I don't have that much to give, what difference does it make? And what I want you to hear this morning is it makes a significant difference. Like we said earlier, the New Testament churches were not full of rich benefactors. Let me give you one example. If you still have your Bible open, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a, a letter that a guy named Paul is writing to a church, a young church in a multicultural city called Corinth, and he's going to call them to a challenge, but in calling them to a challenge, he's going to use a, another church as an example. 
He begins by saying this, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about, here's that word again, the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now watch this formula here. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy plus their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Their overflowing joy plus extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. How does that work? He goes on to say, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, this is another character in the story, just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace. This act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, And in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. What does it look like to excel in the grace of giving? Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there will your heart be also. There's this very deep connection between our experience of grace and our ability to be generous. So when we talk about giving, we're talking about joining in God's purpose, his mission in the world and doing it in a very tangible way. We're also talking about being part of something so much bigger than ourselves than what we could do or experience on our own. But even more fundamental than that, when we talk about giving, we are talking about grace. We're considering the great mystery That as Paul goes on to say in that particular passage in 2 Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. So So that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus held on to nothing in order to gain us. He lost his life that we might find life. Through his poverty we become rich. And then the incredible truth is that it doesn't just end there. Our riches, our story, our experience, our resources that become the vehicle through which others can encounter this grace. Have you experienced this grace? What does it look like for you to excel in the grace of giving? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we hate talking about money. It, it is a deeply personal thing. It is a thing that just in our world today brings up all kinds of stuff and can be very awkward. And yet, God, it, it, it just so clearly and directly connects to our hearts, to the deepest parts of who we are. And it speaks to our identity, our priorities, speaks to our relationship to you in so many different ways. So we begin this moment now by confessing all the ways in which that gets wrapped up in money, in unhealthy, unproductive, even sinful ways.
God, would you help us to be more open-handed with what you have entrusted with us so that we can be more engaged and generous towards your purposes, your mission in the world. God, would you help us as a community to dream and, and, and to pray for the resources to accomplish the mission that you have given us. That people would discover the good news of Jesus, that, that students would discover the good news of Jesus, that families would discover the good news of Jesus. That new expressions of faith communities would be planted here in our community, in the surrounding area, God, wherever your spirit moves that we would be a part of bringing this good news to those who desperately need it. So again, we confess the ways in which we um, allow our hearts to be too closely tied to our resources. God, we're grateful that you love us no matter what we do. And we are grateful for the invitation to be a part of your work in this church, in this city, in this moment in history, God. What a humbling thing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>